From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. Well, it's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Thursday on this Christmas Eve, 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 Eve. I think I counted that out right. I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> Father Brian Mullady is in the house. We're going to empty out the mailbag, maybe take a listen to a couple of listener comment line calls, and uh, get you ready to head into the final days of this Advent season. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. And um, if you would like to be part of a future mailbag edition, just simply send us an email. The email address is openline at EWTN.com and put Father Brian or Thursday in the subject line, and we'll get it to the appropriate folder for a future program. Also, if you'd like to leave us a listener comment line call, you can call our regular number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986 after 4 p.m. Central Time, and you can leave your message there. And our host, as he is every Thursday, the aforementioned Father Brian Mullady. How are you? I'm just fine. Well, as Advent winds to a close, that means, of course, the beginning, not the end, but the beginning of the Christmas season. Absolutely. In fact, uh, it's so strange the difference between secular Christmas and religious Christmas, because about the time secular Christmas ends, which is basically the day after Christmas, uh, that's when religious Christmas actually begins, because uh, we're not just celebrating giving, you know, gifts in a family sort of thing. We're celebrating the central, one of the central events of our salvation, I suppose, in the Christian calendar, that uh, Easter's the principal feast, and Pentecost used to be a big feast with its own octave, but also comes Christmas, or Epiphany, depending on how you look on it, because it has to do with the actual manifestation of God on earth. Uh, The primary manifestation, of course, being when he came from Mary's womb, but then him being recognized by both the Jews and the nations, that's the Gentiles, is a central part of the whole mystery. And so depending on what culture you're in, you emphasize Christmas, which is the mass of the incarnation, Christ, or you uh, recognize Epiphany as the principal celebration, which is the manifestation of our Lord to the world. And then, of course, we run through as a part of that manifestation the baptism and our Lord's of, of Christ and our Lord's first burial miracle publicly, which is the wedding feast at Cana. So we're coming up now on the time when most of us consider a, a, a very emotional and should consider it a joyous event. Unfortunately, as you know, it's been relegated to happy holidays, and in some places they won't even allow you to say Merry Christmas which is absolutely ridiculous. I mean, and also, uh, 
the Christian religion has been somewhat influenced by this. Because I remember in the year 2000, the, uh, which is, of course, the 2000th anniversary of our Lord's incarnation, that there were a number of Catholic theologians who basically maintained that Jesus wasn't a unique mediator between God and man, that all religions had their mediators. Well, we weren't celebrating their birthdays. We were celebrating the one unique mediator. And Cardinal Ratzinger made that quite clear in some documents from the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith that Christ is the one unique mediator. And also, it's I'm constantly amused by the attempt to take away the fact that time was totally altered when Christ came to earth because we use, we reckon time from his birth. It used to be Anno Domini in Latin, in the year of our Lord, but now it's the common era. Common to what? <laughs> I mean, it makes no sense, this politically correct nonsense. Instead, what we must do is constantly bring ourselves to the manger and remember that our Redeemer didn't come in power and magnificent. He wasn't born in a palace. He wasn't a, great, a member of a great royal family. His birth wouldn't have been noted in any kind of news media or anything. And yet, he is the unique mediator between God and man, the only one who eventually can save us from original sin. Bishop Sheehan, in his typical fashion, used to say it years ago, every other man was born to live, Christ was born to die. <clears throat> so in the shadow of the manger, we also find the cross. That's perhaps one of the reasons why a number of the feasts of the octave of Christmas are feasts of martyrs, including the Holy Innocents. So as we're looking forward now, in a couple of nights, to the holy night, the most holy night, and the day in which Christ is alternatively considered to be the light that shatters the night of the world in sin and the bright day of truth, we must constantly put in our souls this wonderful uh, incarnation. Remember, God became man that we might be entered into divinity, that we might become God. Again, it's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Thursday, so we won't be taking your phone calls today. We're going to empty out the mailbag, which we will begin to do right now. Ted writes in, my daughter is living with her fiancé. How can I maintain a relationship with her but also speak the truth to her? tricky well it's tricky yeah but it's her business really who she's living with um i i personally wouldn't necessarily go to their house but you know i keep up contact in uh feast days and birthdays and things like that and also you can always meet in a restaurant <laughs> and have a nice time so going to the house basically affirms the illicit relationship. Uh, 
Whereas if you just meet the them as you know human beings and you could have dinner with lunch with anybody, uh, that can be a convivial time, but not one where you approve of the relationship. Uh, we in religious life experience this a lot too, um, because our siblings often don't practice our faith anymore. And of course, the last person on earth that can evangelize there is your member of your family. So it's always better to receive it from someone else. So, you know, you can meet and talk about the family, your parents, uh, your siblings, that, but you could, don't have to necessarily. At least I can tell you in mine, if I touched on religion, it'd be, they'd just reject it, period, and probably get worse. And this is really the situation that Jesus was talking about when he talked about a prophet being welcome everywhere but his own home. Uh, huh? Home, home, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, remember, when Jesus performed all the miracles of Nazareth, they all said he was out of his mind, his family members. <laughs> so that goes to show you that was even true of the Lord. Again, a special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Thursday with Dominican Father Brian Milady. We are not going to take your phone calls today, but it's a brand spanking new show for you on this Thursday before Easter. So uh, if you'd like to be part of a future, um, yeah, Easter, how am I doing? Christmas even. Christmas. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I'm cold. I want it to be warm. So I'm rushing the season here. But this Thursday before Christmas is what I meant to say. Excuse me. If you want to be part of a future, maybe even the show on the Thursday before Easter, who knows, someday, uh, send us an email. The email address is openline at EWTN.com. That's openline, all one word, at EWTN.com. And put Father Brian or Thursday in the subject line, something like that, so it'll get to the appropriate location. And you can also leave us a listener comment line call. Simply call our regular number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Um, after 4 p.m. Central Time on any day, and you can leave your message there. So it's a special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Milady. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. You know, if you enjoy EWTN Bookmark Brief with Doug Keck, you can receive weekly emails, including a short video blog. It features the author giving a short synopsis of their work in his or her own words. You can simply visit EWTN.com and click on subscribe. Again, a special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Thursday, so we won't be taking your phone calls today. Um, Darian in San Antonio, Texas writes in, Father, he says, Dear Father Milady, such concern and confusion with the Pope's nod to bless same-sex couples. Here is a confusing situation. Every Sunday Mass after receiving communion, 
And before the final blessing, our priest has announcements and acknowledges birthdays and wedding anniversaries for the congregation. So the man and wife stand up before the community and state how many years they've been married, and we all applaud the milestone. Father then says a quick blessing for them. So I'm so am I to understand from the Pope's perspective that when Bob and Bill stand up at Mass to receive a blessing for their gay marriage, we Catholics can all applaud that Father and Father with say the blessing as well with question marks. As a side note to this question, I feel for you priests who have to navigate church leadership's questionable dictation on issues like climate change, and now this reminds me of your remark on Napoleon saying he could destroy the Catholic Church, while the Cardinal said the leadership over the centuries is trying its best to do the same without success. I truly enjoy listening to you on the radio and believe you are helping everyday people out there get to heaven, and that's Darian in San Antonio. Uh, no, you shouldn't applaud. In fact, the priest shouldn't have gay couples stand. The documents are very clear at the Vatican. Even though the Pope pastor allows you to bless people, he doesn't allow you to bless unions. And therefore, to recognize the thing as a valid union, uh, he basically says, well, some people might be brought to mercy or something by this. Well, that's true. But not by, uh, it's, it's evil. The relationship itself is evil. And we don't tolerate it. And the Vatican document for the most recent statement by the Pope is very clear that in no sense can it be looked upon or pre- even presented as a blessing of the union. It has to just be individual people like you'd bless people going into war without any question about whether some of them is the state of mortal sin or not, or in illicit relationships. So, uh, no, the priest shouldn't do that for that particular uh, difficulty. And, of course, we shouldn't applaud for it either. It's not right. Let's take a listen to one of our listener comment line calls. Hi, this is Anthony from Ann Arbor, Michigan. I have a question for Father Milady about St. Thomas Aquinas' third way and physical materialism or materialistic determinism in the sense that in third way, Thomas talks a lot about God's existence arising from possibility and necessity and how you have to have a necessary being to have the existence of the many possible beings that we see surrounding us. But what would you say to a physical determinist who says that everything is that's possible is not really possible in the sense that it's determined by uh, the laws of nature and the constraints of the universe since the Big Bang and that therefore things that seem possible or contingent aren't actually possible or contingent. They're just the result of the laws of nature and physics. Thank you, Father. Wow. <laughs> Lots of possibilities. There, there you go. I'll be back in about 20 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, look, um, the issue really is that in order to have a contingent being, which everything that exists is in the cosmos, in the universe, it's you have to have a necessary being that there be beings that are not necessary that exist. And so it has nothing to do with natures or things like that, 
or their replacement, their possible replacement or anything like that. What it has to do with is the idea that in order for there to be a part, there has to be a whole, and a whole which uh, has no parts about it. It's a similar argument to the idea that God has to be, uh, you know, only form and not matter, because matter is uh, possibilities or potentials. There is no potential in God. He's pure act, because otherwise he could possibly not be. So that's the way I understand it anyway. Eight, uh, uh, I almost gave out the phone number, but I didn't. Because this is a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Thursday. Paula writes in, Does the Catholic Church believe that the devil is a tool to provide temptations so that people truly have free will? Uh, No. The devil is an angel. God created the angels to give him praise. But the angels have free will. And as a result, some of the angels chose to obey the commandment they were given to show that they had the gifts they had, not from their own, but from uh, grace, a loving creator, and the devil chose to disobey. Since he chose to disobey, uh, he, he seeks God still, but he can never find or experience God. And, out, and therefore, out of envy that we can experience God, And also, I would say just out of being like a totalitarian dictator, the devil wants everybody to share in his lack of fulfillment. And he tries also to fulfill through us. So C.S. Lewis used to compare the devil to like the black widow spider who shows power by consuming the groom after the wedding. (laughs) Uh, It's an attempt to expand the potentials and possibilities present in your existence. Well, we do that by loving God, but the devil can't love God anymore because he's chosen not to, and angels are so singular in their choice that once they make the first one, which was either for self or for God, they're stuck with that, and they want God to conform himself to them. So, no, the angels were created like everything else was to be a reflection of the glory and the praise of God. The trouble is that like us and like the good angels, they have free will and they have to receive this as a gift, not something they could control. So the idea of dominating and controlling is what the devil is about that he might not feel that he's lacking something which he always will lack, which is union and communion with God. So that's why the devil exists. Ryan wants to know how we can know that God is real. (laughs) That's kind of a nebulous question. Mm -hmm. Um, The heavens declare the glory of God in the firmament shows forth the work of his hand. Day unto day takes up the story, and not into night makes known the message. No speech, no word, no voice is heard, yet their span goes off through all the earth. You just question the, the beauty, order, and uh, of the cosmos, basically. 
A lot of people find God by going to the mountains and looking at just the sky um, because they're impressed by the order and depth and power of the universe. And that itself has to do with the fact that the orderer must uh, be, well, like, I, like we said before, necessary being and also has to be a being in order to keep all the other beings in existence that is, has no potential whatsoever, but is a complete, uh, absolute existence. Uh, Walt writes in, can you clarify just war theory? When is self-defense or defense of the innocent justified? Well, there are a number of conditions. Uh, one is it has to be a defensive war against an unjust aggressor. Another is it has to be declared. Another is it has to be by proper authority. And I forget what the fourth one is. You have to be able to win. Well, that's true, yeah. Nobody goes into um, a battle knowing they're going to be annihilated. It's silly to do that. So yes, it has to be some chance of success, yes. Again, it's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Thursday, so we're not taking your phone calls today. Um, here's a good question. Tiffany wants to know, what does chastity within marriage mean? Chastity within marriage means that a person in the sexual relationship is not seeking to dominate some, the other partner and therefore respecting the laws that have to do with self-giving and reception in joy. And so as a result, anything that would compromise the final purpose of sexuality, which would, of course, you know, be procreation and education of child, of offspring, or union of the parties, is something that people who participate in the sexual relationship have to deny. So they have to have somehow the ability to have a child insofar as God gives it, or gives them that ability, they can't deny children completely, though they may not have a child. They can't deny it. And also, they have to be interested in the good of the other. John Paul II was very clear uh, that it can't be a matter of mutual exploitation. So it has to be a matter of choice and freedom. So a person, one member of the uh, relationship, or even both, can't seek to dominate and manipulate the other, which unfortunately is one place where it really breaks down. And each has to be free to give themselves. It's one of the things that makes natural family planning so important because the woman has to be able to tell the man when she is free to do the deed and the man has to respect her uh, cycle and then they both have to, in a sense, agree. Again, it's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Thursday, so we won't be taking your phone calls today. If you'd like to be part of a future mailbag edition of Open Line Thursday, simply send us an email to openline 
at EWTN.com. That's open line, all one word, at EWTN.com. And put Father Milady or Thursday into the subject line. We'll get it to the appropriate location, and you might very well hear your email on a future episode. It's EWTN's Open Line Thursday with Dominican Father Brian Milady. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. Congratulations going out to another member of the EWTN radio family, Catholic Radio of Marshalltown, Iowa, celebrating 20 years with EWTN. They've survived a tornado. They've survived all sorts of stuff there in Marshalltown. Congratulations to Bob Dick and everyone at Catholic Radio of Marshalltown from your friends here at EWTN Radio. Again, it's a special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Thursday, so we will not be taking your phone calls today. Um, Sandra writes in, Father, what are the attributes of God, and more importantly, where can I learn more about them? Well, the attributes of God are his unity, his truth, his goodness, and some would say his beauty. And uh, any good... uh, treatise on God, like in St. Thomas or somewhere else, will have an examination of all these attributes. So, um, unity, um, truth, love, goodness, and some would say beauty. Let's take a listen to another one of our listener comment line calls. This is Larry from Mobile, Alabama. I had a, I had a question about baptism. I live in a household full of Protestants. I'm more Catholic. I discovered the Catholic faith while I was in college, and the truth's in it. And my my youngest sibling isn't baptized, and so I don't know really what to do about it because my family isn't a member, like as a whole, isn't a member of any church, and. So I'd love to see her be baptized, but I don't think the clergy will baptize her unless, like, someone vows to, like, raise her in the Catholic faith. And, like, I might be incorrect about this, but so if I am, please correct me. But I know that, you know, like, the belief in the original sin and when we're baptized, like, it takes away that stain off our souls. We still have concupiscence afterwards, but, and I'd love to see her baptized, but I don't think the clergy would baptize her. I know they teach that... We should only baptize when it's in danger of death. So if you could just offer any advice, I'd really appreciate it. Well, there's a reason the clergy teaches that. Because it's true baptism saves you from original sin. But then it also introduces you into all kinds of obligations. After all, you become a member of the... You know, you can, can experience the life of the Holy Trinity, which includes sacramental participation and if you can't participate in the sacraments it's there are all kinds of obligations you have to experience from confirmation to Eucharist and the sacraments of initiation that you can't do 
So that's why we insist that you be a member of a particular church, our church, because of the obligations that baptism also introduces you to. You know, everything has a, a side of it that are rights, but in addition to rights are duties. And so it's true you don't have to worry about original sin anymore as a kind of a right. But you have the duty, therefore, to act like a Christian. And that includes in Catholicism the sacramental order. So you have to be able to confess and do Holy Communion and all those things. Special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Thursday. Randall writes in, when a person is born, do they automatically know right from wrong or are morals learned? <laughs> That's the famous nurture versus nature difficulty. Yeah. Uh, they don't automatically know specifically the difference between right and wrong, but they do have a moral sense. Now, how that's formed, that's something that has to do with uh, nurture and also with the formation of your own conscience. Uh, I know as my own particular life, I can tell you that I was a rotten kid. And all of a sudden, when I went to school and was introduced into the idea of confession and the Eucharist, only then did I begin to develop my moral sense in any kind of specific way so that I felt guilt when I did things to other people. And I knew that there were things that I needed to do to show that I was a human being. Even if I didn't fully understand them, I learned them from others. Kurt writes in, does predestination take away from free will? Oh, is it gosh. is it possible that predestination <laughs> is real? <laughs> Again, you want this in two minutes? I mean, come <laughs> on, you know. Uh, no, uh, you're predestined by God to good. The fact that you can choose evil is due to the fact that you have a free will. Because you're supposed to choose good. That's why you have a free will. Now, of course, God knows what you will choose because out of his eternity, he already sees our life and what it will be. But God gives each of us sufficient grace to choose him. And if that is not enough, or that, that's seen in the crucifixion. So the very fact that we have the crucifixion and the resurrection and I, I guess you could say the incarnation, too, because it's Christmas. Uh, we have sufficient motive to choose God, but we always can resist it. God does not ever predestine anyone for hell. He predestines them for heaven, but he also sees that people will choose hell. Let's take a listen to another one of our listener comment line calls. Yes, this is Pamela from Farmington, Missouri. I am teaching my son catechism, who is being homeschooled by his father. Father and mother are both Catholic, but not practicing. And my grandson is 10 years old and has been baptized. But father is saying he 
will not allow him to re receive the Eucharist until he's old enough to understand it. How do you best answer or handle this situation? Well, generally regarding the Eucharist, the Catholic Church tends to look on it in the same way. That's why we educate people and we don't allow them normally to go until they reach the age of reason. But we only uh, demand a very super sufficient understanding. Supposedly Pius X, who was the Pope who was very interested in frequent communion, uh, wanted to give communion to a little boy, and they said, Holy Father, he's too young. So the Pope says, do you know what this is? And he says, body and blood of Christ, he's old enough. And then he gave him communion. Um, and as you know, the Eastern Orthodox Church, however, they give communion with baptism. So a baby, they have the little you know, chalice with the leaven, unleavened bread and the spoon, and they spoon that into the baby's mouth. So they receive communion the moment they're baptized. Um, how, who of us really understands in the fullest sense much of our religion, and yet we participate in it because uh, faith is the essence of things unseen, the substance of things to be hoped for. We don't have to understand absolutely everything about it. Uh, a seven-year-old doesn't have to write a treatise on transubstantiation. On the other hand, um, they have to know something about it in order to prepare themselves to receive it. Again, a special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Thursday. We won't be taking your phone calls today. Corey writes in, I recently gained new understanding of Mary's Immaculate Conception. My first reaction was, this is amazing. My second reaction was, how on earth would I begin to explain this to a non-Catholic? Oh, well, that's the second part of the question is very hard because they don't accept certain things about Mary, for one thing. Um, I remember I once gave a talk to some Episcopalians on the Catholic idea of Mary, and after having painted what I thought was a very beautiful picture of how you can be a virgin and a mother and bride at the same time, I asked if there were any questions and this man raises his hand and says, so you think marriage is evil, huh? I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. Did anyone in this room hear me say marriage? Who, who? Would someone raise their hand? Because they, they take things in a different way. Let's put it that way. I will give you an example of some success I had about this. I had an evangelical friend, and he said, what's this Mary bit to me you people believe in? So I said, well, you believe in Holy Scripture, don't you? He said, oh, yeah. I said, literal interpretation? Oh, yeah. So I said, well, it says in the Bible, all generations will call me blessed, which is all we're doing. And he looked at me for a minute, and he said, you know, that makes a lot of sense. Now, doctors like the Immaculate Conception are very deep. As you recall, the church had a great difficulty affirming it because one of the problems is that Mary has to be among the redeemed. She can't be 
separated from the redeemed of the church. And very few people could explain how that could be. It's one of the few examples people give of Thomas Aquinas' wrong teachings. On the other hand, the reason Thomas Aquinas taught that was because that's what the church in Rome believed. Had it believed the opposite, he would have found sure reasons why that would be the case. But the Franciscan Duns Scotus found an explanation which was in light of Mary's participation in the saving acts of Christ, like the crucifixion. God miraculously bridled not only actual sin, but also original sin in her, so that she might be the pure receptacle of the uh, womb, in her womb, of the second person of the Trinity, generating his human nature by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I think that's hard for us to understand, but it's even more difficult for Protestants who don't have, in any sense, a similar idea. But you can use arguments like, all we're doing is calling her blessed, um, like all the centuries have, and it's even affirmed in Holy Scripture. Let's take a visit back to our listener comment line. Pope Worcester, Massachusetts, the question is this, uh, for open, open mind. I go to confession after I receive communion at my pastors and my priest say that I can do this. I do this every Wednesday. I'm in a complex that's cut off from, I can't get to mass and can't get to the confession at regular church. Am I committing a, a model sin by, uh, because I have to sometimes confess model sins after I receive communion. But he, he's told me that he gives me absolution at, right after I, the Mass that I receive on Wednesday. Uh, I don't know what, what to do. I'm in a quandary about it. Thank you. Um, okay. I don't quite understand the pastor's teaching for you. Um, you're not allowed to go to communion until you confess all your mortal sins. So doing it afterwards, unless it's considered to be like because you intend to do it and aren't able to do it, that is a possible explanation. Uh, the pastor gives you permission to do that, and then he performs the words of absolution after the fact. But I would think that I don't quite know what you mean by mortal sins. Um, I doubt that you commit all these mortal sins you say. I think most of them are venial sins because nobody commits that many mortal sins. But um, anyway, I, the way you present the case to me, um, I would think that that would not be really appropriate. But I'm not there, and I don't know what's actually going on. Luis would like to know, when can you disagree with the state and cease obedience? When the state commands you to commit a sin. That's very easy to answer. If the state commands something which is contrary to the natural law, we have no obligation in conscience to obey it. In fact, we have just the opposite obligation to disobey it because it's commanding us to do something evil. 
Again, a special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady. Uh, the 48 Hours of Christmas, back again this year on EWTN Radio. It starts Christmas Eve morning on EWTN Radio. It's an EWTN tradition, the 48 Hours of Christmas. Join us all day, Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, for special programs, music from around the world, and much more. Some of the highlights of this year's 48 Hours of Christmas include a dramatization of Charles Dickens' classic, A Christmas Carol, musical reflections on the true meaning of Christmas, um, our own Mother Angelica asking, what will you give Christ for Christmas? And much, much more. The 48 Hours of Christmas, Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, only on EWTN Radio. Um, Kurt writes in, what is the difference between a soul and a spirit? Are they, are they the same thing? Uh, I would say yes. Yes. <laughs> Well, I, I should take that back. Uh, in material beings like animals and plants, they have souls too because they're living beings. But they obviously don't have spiritual souls. So um, as, if it's a spiritual being like us, if you're asking about us, soul and spirit mean the same thing. Let's go back to our listener comment line. This is David in Claremont, Florida. I had a question regarding to a general confession. Would a person need to confess sins prior to baptism in a general confession? So, for example, I'm a convert. My sins were forgiven at baptism. In a general confession, if there's a change of life, would I need to confess those sins as well? Thank you very much. Well, you're talking to the wrong person because the general, general confession stuff is Jesuit stuff. And Dominicans don't like general confessions uh, for the, precisely the reason you mentioned. There are people whose sins are forgiven and they are made excessively scrupulous by it. However, as you say, if you're going through a change of life once or twice in your life, it can be a good thing. Um, presumably, you've already made one general confession. Yes, in that, you have to, if you've never been to confession before, you have to mention the sins you committed even before baptism. If, on the other hand, you're trying to go back and just mull over things that are already forgiven, you may do that, but it's not recommended because it makes a person excessively scrupulous uh, however, people often want to show what the mercy of God in their lives and also remind themselves of the places where they need to grow. And so if they make a general confession, what they're trying to do is uh, place everything under our Lord and have a deeper consciousness of where they need to address their sinful inclinations. And I believe we have one more listener comment line call. This is Susan in Alexandria, Louisiana. I'm calling to talk to Father Milady and ask him about the transfiguration. Moses and Elisha were seen. How their bodies were seen, I guess. How did they know that it was Moshe and Elisha? 
and they had died, and they had not, uh, how did they have bodies? Was it just a vision or an imagination or a dream or, please under, uh, let me know the answer. Thank you. All right. Well, in the transfiguration, it wasn't a dream. Uh, it certainly was a vision. No, their bodies were already dead. And the reason they knew it was because of the way they were portrayed, speaking to Christ. Remember, they were having a conversation. And the great two mediators of the Old Testament were the law and the prophets. So Elijah represents the prophets. Moses represents the law. Uh, but it was a true vision in which they were given... Um, by our Lord, an experience of Moses and Eliah, and remember it was discussing the passion as a preparation to give them courage when they came to experience the passion with Christ. Uh, Thomas writes in, why is Satan referred to as him since angels don't have gender? Oh, it's just, uh, again, a biblical way of talking. We're not going to call it it. <laughs> and I guess they didn't feel it was womanly. So angels are generally uh, attributed to be male. But there, as you're right, they have no gender. Mm -hmm. Um. Jane wants to know, how did original sin change our bodies, most particularly in regards to childbirth? Oh, yes. That's the, one of the punishments for original sin. Before the sin, women did not experience pain in childbirth. It's expressed when Mary brings forth Jesus, and it says she brought forth her child in joy. But after the sin, the body uh, is left to its own devices. Uh, before the sin, you had the miraculous protection of our Lord. After the sin, you don't have any protection at all. God withdraws his protection because we've committed such an unloving act. So, when God withdraws his protection, that includes over what normally and naturally happens to a body when they give birth. And that's the pains of childbearing. Just as Adam, remember, before the sin, didn't sweat when he worked. But after the sin, he experiences labor as toil. And that's because matter resists the spirit. It does so in a woman in giving childbirth, and it does so in human cultivation with farmland. And it's kind of interesting, you know, that women experienced purification after childbirth in the old law, but there were two reasons for this purification. One negative, one positive. One was that the woman had participated, of course, in the spread of the original sin. That was the negative one. But then the positive one was that she had brought forth with her husband someone who was created directly by God. So just as we talk about purifying the chalice, what do we mean by that after Mass? 
we may return what was a, had held holy material to everyday usage in a cupboard. In a similar way, the woman is held holy material, and that she might return to ordinary human life, she has to be purified. And we have an email from George. He says, at the final judgment, does a person who is in heaven experience judgment again? Yes, there are two judgments. There's the personal judgment, which is private to the person, in which they become worthy of heaven or hell. But in the general judgment at the end of time, this personal judgment will be made known by the entire assembled creation. And the fact that their evil is made known, or good made known, will add either to their suffering or to their glo- to God's glory in giving them good. And for those who converted, even from terrible sins, this will add to God's glory. So it's fair to say that anybody who merits heaven or even purgatory has nothing to fear from the general judgment. I know it's a source of great anxiety for a lot of people. Only in the sense that everybody will know what it was. But So if you you say heaven or purgatory, yes, that's true. But if you say hell, everybody's going to know you're in hell. And why? So there's nothing hidden, remember, that won't be made and shouted from the rooftops. So you can't get away with hidden sins in your soul. Well, Father, would you leave us with a Christmas blessing? May the peace and blessing of the incarnate Son of God, born of Mary's womb, descend upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. Amen. On behalf of our host, Father Brian Milady, our producer, Michael McCall, I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in to this very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Thursday. Back at it tomorrow with our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan. Until we get together then, God bless. God bless.